I was uh, had the privilege of being on some water with my son yesterday, my four-year-old son. We were kayaking. We have an inflatable kayak. And he was so excited to get out there and just kind of go explore a little bit. And we're out there. There was a couple of boats that passed by as we were um, <clears throat> paddling through. And, and the boats would create these little ripples, uh, little waves in the water. And my son wanted to go towards the waves. And we experienced a, a little bit of the wave. And I was just thinking about that as I was preparing this message and thinking about what to share and how to share Second Corinthians. And I was reminded of how when God steps into our life and breaks into the history of our lives, there are ripples, there are ripple effects that God changes the trajectory of our life and there are these ripple effects that affect us, but then affect many others. And today we're going to look at the ripple effects of God's salvation in His people that He brings, that He gives freely to His people, and what it looks like to see those effects impact others. We're going to look again at the Apostle Paul and him addressing Second uh, Corinthians, uh, addressing the, the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter one. Last week, we looked at uh, five marks of a godly leader. And Paul was defending his own leadership, his own ministry, in light of the Corinthians who were challenging his authority, who were challenging um, uh, his leadership. And he started off in verse 12 last week, as we looked at it, he started off saying, my conscience is clear before God. He said, I have, I have behaved myself in sincerity or holiness, uh, simplicity or holiness. I have been sincere in my communication. And we also saw that he put the spotlight on Jesus. He, he put the spotlight on Jesus as the hero, on Jesus as the ultimate faithful person who we can always count on. You see, the Corinthians were questioning some of the Corinthians were questioning Paul's reliability, his dependency, his, his faithfulness, because he said he was going to go visit them a second time, and he hadn't come yet. And so they were questioning, is, is, he, is he fickle? Is he vacillating? Is he, uh, what's going on here? And so Paul, Paul points to the faithfulness of God, the God that he had come into relationship with, covenant relationship with, as the basis for his own integrity, as the basis and the foundation for his own life being transformed. And, 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 he, and he also points, in, in this verse, he points to the Corinthians also being established with him in Christ. And so we're going to look at God's salvation in the lives of his people and the ripple effects of love and forgiveness that we see. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I feel like we didn't spend enough time on this section last week. It's so rich. There's so much goodness here for us to extract. As I pointed out last week, notice how, how we see the Trinity here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, as we open up your word, would you speak to us? Would you encourage us with what you have done? 
And may we respond appropriately with your empowerment to live out what you've called us to live out in love and forgiveness. To live lives that honor you and bless others. Because you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. 2 Corinthians 1.18 As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed to you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me that it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord, lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's our big idea this morning. God's saving work in our lives causes ripple effects of love and forgiveness to flow through us into the lives of others. God's saving work in our life causes ripple effects of love and forgiveness to flow through us into the lives of others. Excuse the typo there. So first of all, let's just highlight what Paul is saying here about Jesus and the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus. Okay? Paul, in light of Paul being questioned about his faithfulness and dependability, he points to the faithfulness of God. He says, God is faithful. God is faithful. And in God's faithfulness, he sent his son, Jesus, to fulfill promises that he had made to his people throughout the years. The Israelites had waited for a Messiah, someone who would come and bring rescue, and someone who would deliver them from their enemies. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He is a mighty Savior, a mighty Deliverer. And all the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
As David Garland says, Christ is God's yes to the promise to Abraham that by his seed all the nations of the earth will gain blessing. And to David to raise up David's offspring and to establish his throne forever in Christ. We not only see all of God's promises coming to fruition, but also God's unqualified yes to humankind. Saints, you and I have God's yes. His his promises towards you and I are yes. Okay? He's not holding back. He is 100% for you. And the cross of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ says, yes, God is for you. Yes, God is faithful. And He will fulfill what He said He will do. And He's begun a good work in you and me. And He will be faithful to complete that good work in you and I, as He told the Philippians. Another theologian says that Christ is God's yes to all meaningful human hopes Christ is God's yes to human longing for life, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. But we should be mindful that God also speaks a no to every selfish, perverted longing of humanity. To every desire to get rich quick, to dominate others, or to organize society for selfish advantage. See, it's in Christ. All all God's promises are yes. In Christ. Okay? And so first of all, let's just look at what God has done for his people. It is Paul, Paul's, it's common that Paul highlights what God has done. He highlights the indicative. This is what God has done. And then he calls the people of God to action, to respond. I like to say, as I've heard it said before, that um, our response is our responsibility. It's, it's our response to God's ability, to God's work. And we see this beautiful relationship of God working and us responding, God working in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. But notice verse 21, what Paul says here about the Corinthians. He says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It's God who's done this. Now remember, this is a a church that had a number of issues that the Apostle Paul had been addressing. Okay, and we're going to look at another one here in a moment. But Paul speaks of his confidence in the work of God in the Corinthians because they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they responded to the gospel, and God in his grace established them in Christ. The NIV says, now it is God who makes us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He's our firm foundation. He's our rock. He's the one who sustains us. And he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God is faithful and that God will sustain them guiltless. God will sustain them guiltless until the day of Christ Jesus, until they see Jesus. And so we see God working in the Corinthians. Paul calls this out 
And he says, both me and you guys. God is the one who's established us in Christ. Now, let me just say a little bit about what it means to be in Christ. Because not everybody who is in church is in Christ. And there's a lot of people who have grown up in church all their life, and they may not be in Christ. They may not have a personal relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, to be in Christ means that you are a Christian, that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You've been set free. You've been delivered. You have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. You see, there's, there's transformation that accompanies real Christianity. Be aware of a version of Christianity. But be aware of accepting a version of Christianity that does not accompany a change of life. Because when Jesus comes in, breaks into the history of our lives, and He establishes us in Christ, we really are new creations. And we, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're made right with God, but we're also changed from the inside out. Now, for some of us, it takes a little bit longer to notice the change, or sometimes it's pain, the, the, the fruit is painfully, it, it comes slowly for others, some than others, right? But there should be some fruit, there should be effects, and nevertheless, Paul says, God has established us in Christ. And then notice what Paul says, God has anointed us. He says, God has anointed us. Now, he's probably referring to himself, but this is also true, in a sense, for every single Christian. Now, this, this Greek word is used five times to anoint Five times in the New Testament, this particular Greek word. And every four other times, it refers to Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, right? Jesus is the, the anointed one, commissioned and sent by God into the world to bring rescue and bring redemption. He came with mission on a mission. He was sent by God. The Apostle Paul was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle. And you and I, as Christians, followers of the anointed one, we too receive an anointing and a commissioning from God to go and make disciples, to, to, to be witnesses. 1 John refers to this anointing that every Christian has. He says, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything and is true. And, it, and, is, and is no lie. Just as he has taught you, abide in him. Michael Mitchell in the Holman Bible Dictionary says that in the New Testament, anoint is used to speak of daily grooming for hair, Matthew 6, 17, for treating injury or illness, for preparing a body for burial. Christians see Jesus as God's anointed one, the Savior. The same symbolism as in the Old Testament is employed in this usage. 
God's presence and power are resident in the anointing. Likewise, the Christian is anointed by God for task of ministry. Okay, and we, we emphasize this a lot here, saints. We are called to be ministers. We are called to be representatives of Christ, to, to spread the good news of Jesus, to, to, to witness of what he's done in our lives and to witness of what the gospel of Jesus Christ says and means and how it has affected our lives. He's also sealed us. Notice this is strong language that Paul is using here. He says he, he, has, put, he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Seals, seals were used were also used to attest of truthfulness as a legal guarantee to guarantee the security of something, to guarantee the quality of goods, and to provide proof of identity. David Garland says in his commentary on Second Corinthians, and the Bible tells us, and in, in, in Paul and another tells us in Ephesians one thirteen that we've been sealed. With the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. As a And the Spirit is a like a down payment, a guarantee. He's given us the Spirit to live inside of our hearts. Um, David Garland goes on and he says, something, something was sealed or stamped to indicate ownership. The Spirit has stamped us as belonging to God as opposed to the principalities and the powers. In Ephesians 4.30, the sealing of the Spirit refers to the believer being marked as God's possession. Let me just speak that over you, saints. Those of you who are in Christ, you've been established in Christ. You've been anointed You've been sealed, and you've been given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. Isn't that amazing? That the third person of the Trinity has come to take up residence inside your heart and inside your life. And He leads us, and He comforts us, and He empowers us, and He changes us from glory to glory, Paul says in chapter 3. But we all with unveiled faces are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. See, God is working in our lives. He was working in the lives of the Corinthians. He was working in the lives of the Apostle Paul. And what does the ripple effect look like when God is working in our lives? Paul mentioned several things already. He was a man of sincerity. He was a man who lived with a, a clear conscience, who lived in simplicity. A man who put the spotlight on Jesus. The Spirit leads us to, to put the spotlight on Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And the Spirit produces love in our lives. And so let's look at that in this next section here. We see that the Apostle Paul loved the Corinthian church. And this is a mark of a godly leader. This is the mark, mark of a Christian, a genuine Christian. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have 
love for one another. Now there had been a rough relationship that the Apostle Paul had with some of the Corinthians. And this is what he says here. Notice this in verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that he was for them, not against them, that he loved them. But this didn't make Paul soft on sin, and Paul didn't, didn't skirt around the issues that the Corinthians were having. He confronted the sin in the church for, 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 for their own good, for their own joy. As he told the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I think about this verse in parenting sometimes. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Those late nights. We've got some parents with little kids here. Those late nights, those dirty diapers, those meals, that urgent snack that needs to get into the hand of your child immediately. Parents spend and they're spent on their children. They're poured out for their children. And Paul says, it's my joy. I'll gladly spend and be spent for you guys. It's tough. It's not easy. It's difficult. But I'm going to love you guys. I'm for you guys. And so Paul expressed that. He expressed it. And he also expressed the reason why he didn't come a second time to the Corinthians. All right? They were thinking, some of them were thinking because he was just, he wasn't a man of his word. He wasn't consistent. He was fickle. But he says in verse 23, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. It was to spare you. Okay? Not that we lord over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So, so there was an issue. We don't know exactly what the issue was, but somebody was challenging the Apostle Paul's authority. And there was some kind of sin within the church. And Paul said that it needed to be addressed. And the church did address it. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this idea of church discipline. When, when there's a brother or a sister committing a sin and they're hurting others in the church and they're unrepentant, it needs to be addressed and dealt with. And if, if, it's, and, and if they don't repent, there needs to be, at some point, a healthy boundary of removal so that that pain and destruction doesn't spread to the rest of the body. Okay, now we, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians, the same epistle that has the love chapter that we all love, 1 Corinthians 13, that's most well known, is the same epistle that has the, the church discipline chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Because this is the most loving thing to do. Church discipline is the most loving thing to do when you have a situation where somebody in the family of God is hurting themselves and they're hurting others and they're on a self-sabotaging path of destruction and it's causing negative ripple effects in the body of Christ. 
And so like some action has to happen. Some boundaries need to be laid down. And the whole goal of that is not to cause pain and not to cast the person out. The whole goal is restoration. The goal is joy. The joy of the offender and the joy of the people of God. And the, and the, and the holiness of the people of God. And so Paul loved the Corinthian church. And, and oftentimes when you, when you love people, you're going to have to have hard conversations with them. You're going to have to do hard things and say difficult things in conversation where it's going to hurt. Proverbs tells us faithful, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. How many of you have somebody in your life that has spoken hard truth to you and you know they love you and you're thankful for them even though it's hard to receive and hear that truth at the moment? Anybody? You got somebody like that? If you don't have anybody like that, pray for them, look for them, because we all need somebody like that. Somebody who can speak hard, difficult truth for us, who can tell us what we don't want to hear, but what we need to hear, and be confronted with reality so that we're not off base, living in non-reality. That's the benefit of living in community together. And so love seeks the joy and the well-being of another. Notice that, that Paul says, not that we, we lord it over you, but we work f- with, with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy. This was a huge deal for Paul. Joy. This is, this is a part of living in the kingdom of God. This is a part of the ripple effects of the kingdom of God in our lives as we experience joy and we Contribute to the joy of others. The gospel, the good news, is good news of great joy. There's joy in salvation. There's joy in forgiveness of sins. There's joy in the presence of God that we can now experience through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's much joy to be had. And the Apostle Paul was aiming for that in the church. He knew that sin is a joy killer. A buzz killer, if you will. Joy killer, a robber, an enemy. Sin is an enemy of joy. While it may feel good for a moment, have a passing pleasure, it will take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and make us pay more than we want to pay. And so love seeks the joy and the well-being of another. Love doesn't lord it over others. This was also, uh, we. Uh, this is connected with being a... a a person of grace. Paul talked about him uh, living and leading by the grace of God. This is uh, this idea of, of not lording it over. It's, it's not domineering. It's not trying to, to be the Holy Spirit in someone's life or be their conscience and control them. Because we're not Lord. There's one Lord. There's one Lord over our faith. And it's not you or me. It's Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the giver and the sustainer of our faith. And so we see Paul loving this church, and then he was calling others within the church to do the very same thing. He expressed forgiveness to the, for this offender, and he urged the church to do the same thing. Notice in verse 5. He said, now if anyone has caused pain, 
He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Okay? So here, here's a guy who's stirring up trouble within the church. The church responded. They did the hard thing of church discipline. Okay, that's hard. Like, nobody wants to do that. It's the least favorite thing to do in church, right? To have to have those hard conversations and walk through church discipline with anybody. I mean, parents, you feel the same way with parent, you know, with you know, disciplining your children, right? Nobody looks forward to disciplining their children. But God disciplines those he loves, and, and discipline can be an expression of love for, for the erring, erring brother or sister. And it's hard work to carry out. But it's also hard work to forgive after the discipline has taken place and the actions have taken place and the boundaries have been set. There's a time to refrain and there's a time to embrace a brother or a sister. All right? And Paul was called, Paul seemed to imply here that, you know, it. it what, what needed to take place took place. Now you guys need to do the hard work of forgiving. You did the hard work of church discipline. Now you need to do the hard work of forgiving and reaffirming that you love this brother. Don't treat him as an outcast any longer. Bring him in. And that's the whole goal of church discipline. And that, that is the ripple effect of the gospel of salvation working in our lives when we become Christians. God changes our heart. We experience forgiveness from God. We experience love from God. God forgives us. God establishes us. God changes us. And then there's ripple effects into the lives of those around us. We see that happening through Paul. The beauty of love and grace and forgiveness occurring here. I love this idea of reaffirm your love for him. Tell him, remind him, let him know. When when relationships are going through rocky times and there's conflict, this is a good principle to to apply in relationships. Husbands and wives, when you're in the middle of it, there's a conflict and you're frustrated, you're upset, you're irritated with your spouse. You're trying to talk through some frustrations. It's good to remind them that you love them and you're committed to them. Lest Satan sow a seed, a fiery dart to try to bring division. Or in this case, he says, so that, so that he, he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It's painful when, when, when you've made poor choices that hurt others in your family or your church family. And it's just damaged the relationships. It's painful. Right? And there needs to be a healing process that takes place. A restoration process that takes place. And those of us who know God and know the love of God, we have a great resource within us from the Spirit of God. To love, even when it's difficult. 
So Paul expressed this forgiveness and he expressed this love and he called the church to do the same thing. And he goes on and he says in verse verse 8, he says, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. And so we see Paul expressing love and forgiveness. Isn't this just foundational to the gospel? Isn't this just core to Christianity? Jesus taught that we should forgive one another. Jesus modeled the ultimate expression of forgiveness for us, even as he was being nailed to the cross, mocked and spit upon and beaten, laid open on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's requesting mercy, forgiveness for his offenders. He taught us when we pray to pray, forgive us of our sins, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Right? He taught us in Matthew chapter 18 that if we don't forgive others, then God won't forgive us. Right? And he gave a parable of the unforgiving servant who had been released and forgiven of so much. And then he went and turned around and he held this other guy accountable and, 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 and brought judgment and, and, and harsh standard to him rather than forgiving And God says that if we do that, we're going to experience that. But those of us who've experienced the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God, that's not what we do. That's not what we should do. We experience the ripple effect of love and forgiveness. And that doesn't make it easy, and it doesn't make it automatic either. It doesn't make it automatic. Forgiveness is a choice. A real choice that we have to make towards people who've hurt us. To release them. I remember one time my one time when I was struggling with unforgiveness towards a person and I couldn't sleep one night and I and I just felt just tormented. I, I said, God, I feel tormented right now. And God reminded me of Matthew eighteen thirty five. I went and looked at that parable. This guy was delivered over to the torturers. He says, so will my heavenly father do to each of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. I don't want that. I don't want to experience torment. You've forgiven me, God, so much. How can I not forgive this person? You're the judge. I'm not his judge. I release this person. And as soon as I did, I experienced the peace of God in a very real, profound way. Peace came over me right there on my bed as a 21, 22-year-old. And I I was able to sleep in peace instead of holding on to that grudge that I had towards this person, this leader. So sometimes in love, there are tough things that we have to do and say. And initially it may cause pain. And we don't want to cause pain for anyone. Parents who discipline their children. We don't, we don't want to cause pain to our children. It's not fun. In relationships, 
We don't want to cause pain by telling someone that is hurtful. Some, someone about something that is, is negative or hurtful in their lives that needs to be addressed. St. Augustine says, As severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover, so charity is reluctant to discover what the faults which it must punish. So this idea of severity and love. Paul wrote the Corinthians. Theologians think four letters. Four letters. Okay? We have two of them. For, for some reason, we don't have the other ones. And maybe good. Maybe good for us. Because one of them he describes as a severe letter to the Corinthians. Okay? So instead of showing up with severity and having a second tough conversation... He chose not to go back. And, and, and he chose not to go back to Corinth at that time to give them some space to heal from what's, what already happened. He had to say some really hard things. How many of you know when you, when you tell people, when you share hard things with somebody in a relationship, you need to give them some space. Don't smother them until they're like, okay, are you ready to change? Are you ready to change? <laughs> like, give them some space. You, you, you did your part. Spoke the truth in love. But give them some space to, to work with God and allow the Spirit to work on their hearts because we're not the ones who change people. God is. Right? And so Paul did that. He, he spared them. And in love, he, he didn't go back just to give them some space. And he was glad that he did because the letter that, the severe letter that he wrote, and I think lovingly, turned out to have good effects upon the Corinthians. There was some repentance. The sin in the church was addressed, right? And so when, when he did show up, there could be much more joy instead of pain. We all want the joyful, glad visits, okay? Now, <clears throat> how many of y'all like going to the dentist? How, one, we got one. You're like, the, 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 the suckers are awesome. A new toothbrush, a toothpaste, right? Uh, most people don't like to go to the dentist. Many people avoid the dentist for years. For years. You don't have to raise your hand, but who had been the dentist in like five years, right? You don't have to raise your hand, all right? All right? And, and maybe, you know, you're, you're like, well, everything's good. Nothing's hurting. I don't need to go to the dentist right now. But when you have a tooth that is bothering you, it, it's, it's the worst. It is, it is so distracting. I've, I've had a, more than once, and one time I had an abscess, abscess tooth, right? And it was the worst. Like, you need antibiotics, or a, you, you need to get the infection addressed, because it can affect your overall health. It can spread, right? And so, dental health is really important. But many of us don't want to go to the dentist, because it might be painful, it might be painful to the body and painful to the pocketbook, all right? Because a crown or a root canal costs some money, and you might have to charge it on the credit card, the money that you don't have, but you need to get the pain addressed, right? And we used to have a dentist here, uh, Rosemary uh, Pelfrey, and, and she, loved, she loves to share the gospel through the analogy of the root canal, Okay, she loves sharing the gospel through the analogy of the root canal, and she describes, you know, the infection like sin, right? Sin that's just spreading and causing pain, right? And and and, and as a dentist, what she has to do is she has to drill into that tooth 
like all the way down to the root. And it's anybody ever had a root canal? It's the worst, right? It's terrible. Like you're sitting there getting drilled on. I mean, they, of course, they, they numb you up. Ideally, like you can get something numb enough to relieve the pain. Um, but it, but it, it's painful, but it has to be dealt with. The pain has to be experienced at some level if the infection is going to be removed. Right? And so, so God will tell us difficult things, hard things about ourselves and our sin. And loving Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, must be willing to do the same. Have those hard conversations so that the deeper issues can be addressed. So that the infection doesn't spread. So that it doesn't become more costly. More cost of, of more, more time, more money, more pain, more mental, emotional energy. And thankfully God is committed to addressing issues of unhealth in our lives. And lastly, I just want to want to point out too that the Apostle Paul says, um, as he's encouraging the church to forgive, he points out, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Right? It's been said that offense and unforgiveness is the bait of Satan. Right? He wants us to take that bait and hold on to it and, and not forgive someone. Right? And uh, <clears throat> it's been said that un- holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting someone else to die, expecting someone else to be affected by it. It's damaging to us. It has to be dealt with. Right? And so, and Satan gets in through through relational conflicts, through unforgiveness, through through bitterness that just festers, wounds that just fester towards other people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ brings healing and wholeness to those broken areas of our life. The love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit brings healing and wholeness to those areas in our life and we, get, we, we are given the resource to forgive. We are given the power by the Spirit to resist Satan's schemes, to recognize the Spirit helps us discern this is the work of the enemy trying to divide, trying to des- destroy, trying to harm you, your family, the church. And so resist him, James 4 says. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Resist him. Don't just listen to his accusations and his lies and his deception. Resist him. Recognize when Satan's whispering in your ears, putting thoughts in your mind that are contrary to God's word. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Lord willing, see this in weeks to come. He says uh, that we, are, we have the mighty weapons Mighty weapons to tear down every lofty argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. To take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We must do this. We must fight. Again, forgiveness isn't automatic. It is is the effect of the gospel and salvation in our lives. 
But we have to, we have to consciously choose to forgive people who've hurt us. We have to consciously resist Satan and stand against his lies and his deception and submit to God and allow God to, to push back, to destroy his schemes and designs. But we must be aware of them, not naive. That's why we need to know the scripture. That's why we need to be in right standing with community, with those around us in our relationships. Cultivate a clear conscience. And so let me close with a couple points of application. First, be confident of God's saving, sustaining, and transformative work in your life. Are you confident? Are you assured that you belong to Christ? That He has established you, saved you, sealed you, that His Spirit dwells in you. Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with the Spirit of children of God. The Holy Spirit who dwells inside of the child of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. When we have that, when we have Him inside of us, bearing witness that we're His children, we can have confidence, surety, certainty that we will be with God forever. Not because we're strong. Not because we have to work for our salvation. We don't. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to do, work to will and to do His good pleasure. Amazing grace. And we can be confident that God's going to come through on His promises, that He's going to be faithful to sustain us, to finish the work that He started in us, and He's changing us. We can be confident that those, those, those areas of struggle and sin and selfishness in our lives, we can be confident that it's not going to be like this forever. He's committed to transforming us, and we have power living inside of us to change. And as we do, As we progress in the process, it should give us greater and greater assurance. So give freely the love and forgiveness that you have received from Christ. You freely have been forgiven. You didn't earn it. Like the woman in Luke 7, the sinful woman, who had been forgiven of much, her response, the ripple effect to experience Experiencing God's radical forgiveness, grace, and love. She poured out her life savings at Jesus' feet. Because she had experienced forgiveness and love. It's the ripple effect. Those who are forgiven much, love much. And then know that loving others well will involve having some difficult conversations. Just not smooth coasting. After becoming a Christian, there are hard conversations, difficult experiences to walk through in life, in relationship with family, with church family. I 
I'd like for us to pray a prayer from Ephesians 3 together in response. Kevin, would you come on up? If you all would stand with me. So let's read this, pray this together from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, and then Kevin, the team is going to lead us in a response song. Here we go. Let's read. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We say amen to that. Let it be. Yes. Lord, thank you for your beautiful work in our lives. And as Paul pointed to your faithfulness, your solid character as the basis for him being a person of character, may we too experience that ripple effect of being changed from glory to glory by your spirit. More love, forgiveness, faithfulness, purity, more of you in our lives. We say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. More of you, we ask. More of your love. More of your glory, your fullness, filling our lives, flowing in and through us. May we be conduits of your love, your life, your grace, and your truth. If there's anyone here who's experiencing a clog, anyone here who's more like a cul-de-sac, who's clogged and experiencing and letting your love and forgiveness flow through them, I pray that today, God, you would break through, that you would heal the pain your love would break through, that your light would pierce the darkness. 